Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. So I am joined by Alan McCubbin all the way from Australia today. Alan is a senior teaching fellow and researcher based at Monash University and I got to know Alan through the sports nutrition course as part of Sports Dietitians Australia earlier in 2021. So yeah, really um, pleased to have you join me today, Alan. Oh, pleasure to be here. I don't think Australia is that far away though, <laughs> just across the ditch. It feels a long way away since we haven't been able to get there for a while. Very true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Monash University is based in Melbourne, is that correct? Yeah, 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 so it's sort of southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Cool, and tell us a bit about you and what you do. Yeah, so I mean, I've been a dietitian for, what is it, 16, I guess we ticked over to 2022 now, is that coming up 17 years, I suppose, um, and worked sort of in sport. Uh, at, at varying degrees for probably the majority of that, save maybe the first couple of years. Um, and that's, yeah, as I said, my involvement in sports nutrition has sort of gone up and down around other bits and pieces of work throughout that time. You know, I sort of started out more in, in the biopractice sort of area uh, and very quickly sort of developed mainly in the endurance and ultra-endurance sports within that, uh, within the first couple of years of that. Uh, but did a little bit of work in team sports and things as well. Uh, and then about six or seven years ago, started doing a bit of teaching at Monash in sports nutrition, uh, and from there ended up doing a PhD there uh, around sort of sweat testing and, and sodium needs of athletes and things like that. So since then, uh, since, what, 2019, when I finished that, um, I sort of continued on there, done a bit more research work at Monash uh, and stayed there in a in teaching role as well, uh, and then taken on a variety of other projects on doing some consulting work for Triathlon Australia for their Melbourne-based athletes on their high-performance program. So that's been good, both uh, triathletes and paratriathletes. And then um, also, as you mentioned, you know, course coordinating for the sports nutrition course for Sports Dietitians Australia as well. Cool. Quite a quite a few roles in there. That's, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I have to constantly remind myself what I'm doing. <laughs> Too many different things. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Variety is the key. And yeah. with your research in uh, sweat and sodium in particular, was that like from personal interest or did you sort of just happen to stumble upon that topic? Um, probably a, a little bit of both. Um, I was, it was very unusual that I walked into basically a role where they wanted someone to help out with the teaching in the sports area and they wanted to do a PhD as well, but they didn't have a specific PhD project to go into. So normally, you know, a lecturer or a professor or someone has a project that they want to do. They have the project, the funding, and then they need someone to come in and do the project. And so you kind of come in to do a project, whereas in my case, I came in to do a PhD with no specific topic. And so I sort of walked, you know, and they said, well, what do you want to do, Um, which is pretty unusual it does happen sometimes um and so i sort of was thinking well what are the areas where there are the biggest gaps in terms of science in sports nutrition in in endurance sports because that's the area that i mainly practice in and for me the sodium side of things and the hydration side of things were the the kind of the two glaringly obvious ones and particularly the sodium Uh, and it was uh it was actually a talk that i heard at a conference probably four or five years even before that that kind of sparked my interest in this effect of how, you know, sweat glands adapt to changes in how much sodium we eat on a day-to-day basis and that the fact that how much sodium is in our diet could it influence the amount that we actually lose in our sweat during exercise. And it was something I hadn't really heard before until then. 
And so I went away after that conference and started to look into the literature on this. And yes, there were some studies there, but uh, they were quite old. Uh, a lot of them were fairly poorly done, um, and a lot of them probably wouldn't get published by today's standards. They were sort of going back to the, the 40s, 50s and 60s in a lot of cases. So, um, yeah, it seemed to me like a, an obvious area where there's a big gap. There wasn't really anything specific in the guidelines, and that's because of the lack of research. So I thought, well, there's no point, you know, doing another caffeine study or another carbohydrate study. Um, those things have been done to death, and, you know, there's probably still nuances to be ironed out, but let's pick an area where... There seems to be big gaps and no one seems to be particularly interested in filling those gaps at the time. So that's how I sort of got into it. Mm. No, a very good choice. And I agree. There's, it seems to be an area of nutrition where there's, there is a gap. And even with what we know now, it's still, there's a lot of like variation in terms of, you know, what's the specific hydration needs for athletes and the sodium. Um, you did a, a recent paper, was it 2019? Uh, on possibly, sodium. depends which one it was. Um, uh, that was really, really good. So I guess from your perspective and what you know in your own research, how would you summarise athletes, uh, endurance athletes' sodium needs? Yeah, so I've sort of gone on a bit of a journey with this, to be honest, over the last sort of five years or so. But I guess if we were to summarise all of that, I guess the first thing to think about or, or ask is, you know, why would an athlete need sodium during exercise? And, and most people would say, well, we lose it in our sweat, so we should replace it. And so then you, 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 know, you just keep asking the questions and, and follow the answers that it gives you. And it's like, well, why do we need to replace it? Does it matter? Um, and then you get all sorts of different answers. And this is where the, the lack of research comes out because you start finding that you're having trouble scientifically, at least answering those questions using evidence or, or studies that have been done. Um, so we know we have sodium sitting around in our in our fluid, in our bloodstream, but also what we call the extracellular fluid, which is the fluid that sits around the outside of our cells, uh, and that sort of interchanges with the, the fluid in our blood. Uh, and then we do have some stores of sodium in the body, but it turns out that um, they're not so easily um, stored and released, at least in a way that's helpful during exercise. It's more there for, for other reasons. Um, and so you know, that, that question becomes, well, what purpose does replacing that sodium do during exercise? And it's, it's a hard question to answer. And, you know, I've looked at, at several angles of this. You know, people talk about the cramping, but actually the evidence suggests that, um, you know, replacing the sodium uh, independently of fluid, which we can get to maybe later on, um, doesn't really make any difference in terms of cramping risk. Um, and then people talk about hyponatremia. Well, that's the balance between water and sodium. So you really can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, and so, you know, you sort of look at all these possibilities and, and in the end, it probably comes down to simply that balancing the water that you're, you're drinking. So when you sweat, you lose water, but you lose sodium as well. Um, and depending on the person, um, they lose different amounts of sodium. And again, we could talk about how that varies from person to person and why um, as we get into it. But so we're, we're losing water and sodium. We're generally replacing it with, with just plain water. And over a short time frame, you know, an hour or two or even three hours, it probably doesn't really make that much difference. But in the ultra endurance space, when you're doing that constantly over 15 or 20 hours, it does start to make a difference. And that's where you can see a, a lowering of the amount of sodium relative to water in the blood, so the blood sodium concentration and the risk of, of hyponatremia. And so for me, uh, I guess where I've come to after all this work is that probably the only reason we need to replace sodium during exercise is, is simply that, it's to balance the blood sodium concentration. Um, and, and again, we'll get into this, but it doesn't always necessarily mean we need to take in sodium because it also depends on how much fluid we're drinking and you can't really talk about the guideline for sodium without talking about what you're doing with the fluid because they're so intimately linked. Mm. And with the fluid needs, that's another really interesting one. So with, with athletes um, and hydration needs, how do you normally go about, in your practice, sweat rate testing with your athletes? Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I guess the first thing is thinking about in what situations would we even need to do sweat rate testing um, or does it not really matter? So, 
uh, I guess part of that is thinking about, okay, well, we can do a test like this and we can get a result from that, but what are we going to do with that result? And if the answer is it doesn't really change what we're going to do, then why are we doing the test in the first place? So, you know, the amount that we can replace or drink during exercise, you know, depending on the sport and the event within that sport, there's lots of different factors that influence how much we can or, or will drink during exercise. And some of those are biological, um, and so they're they relevant. But others are more logistical or behavioural. You know, you've got a certain amount of fluid that you've got that you can carry around with you. So, you know, you're running an ultramarathon, for example, you've got however much fluid you can carry on you and then, you know, between checkpoints. And so uh, that might be more than adequate. It might be not adequate enough. And some of that is based on, you know, the gear you decide to take. And so decisions like that can have an influence as well. So I look at some sports, you know, soccer is a good example where you're out there for 90 minutes, but there's no opportunities to drink other than half time because there's no breaks in play where they can run water onto the ground or anything like that, like you get in, say, Australian football mm. um, or, or rugby or something like that. So in that case, probably fluid rate testing is not going to help that much because if there's a limit to how much you can drink, you're probably never going to be able to place it all. Um, then you just do the best you can at half time and that's that's about it. Whereas in like something like an ultra space, uh, it, it probably does become more important. So, yeah, so the first thing I guess is should you do you need to test um but assuming that you do need to test or you're, you're interested uh, i guess the way you do it is you look at the change in body weight from before to after exercise um and so obviously as we sweat we're losing water from the body um you know a mill of water is roughly equal to one gram we can kind of make that assumption for this purpose um and so for every gram of weight that we're losing we're losing a mill of sweat and so we weigh ourselves before and after exercise we need to make sure that you know, beforehand, we're obviously dry. Um, you do that with as little clothing as you can get away with in the, the situation you're in. If you're at home with no clothes, it's probably the, the most accurate way and do the same afterwards. Um, obviously, if you've got long hair that catches sweat, then, you know, you want to dry that off as much as you can and dry the, the sweat that's still sitting on your skin off before you weigh yourself afterwards. Uh, and the difference... Uh, that weight loss is, is essentially sweat loss. Um, the only things you need to correct for are if you've been to the toilet, obviously that's additional weight loss that's not sweat, so you need to factor that in. Um, or if you've eaten and drank things, obviously that's weight gain that you need to factor in as well. Um, and so, yeah, you, you make allowances for both of those things. Um, and then you get the total weight loss is pretty much the sweat loss once it's corrected for those, those different factors. Mm. I've been in interesting conversations with coaches um, as part of a group and they were talking about doing sweat rate tests with their athletes and they were unsure why there was such a difference in two people's sweat rate tests um, on completely separate days, different conditions. And I mean, obviously there's so many factors that come into play with that and different physiology as well. And they were also doing one-off sweat rate tests, which... I don't know what your perspective is, but I feel like doing a one-off sweat rate test and basing that around someone's fluid needs is almost more detrimental than not doing any at all and guessing. Mm, yeah, so yeah, it's an interesting point. So I guess that comes back to, you know, why, why is sweat rate vary from person to person or even from day to day in the same person? And um, there's been some interesting work on this in the last 10 years, actually. You know, people have kind of assumed in the past that it's all, you know, it's all just genetics. You know, that's kind of, I think that's sort of the throwaway line when people don't know how to explain the differences between people. Oh, it must be genetics. But um, we know with, with sweat rate that the amount of sweat that your body produces is based on your body temperature um, and what we call the evaporative requirement for heat balance. So during exercise, obviously, our body gets hotter. We produce heat because of all the energy our muscles are producing for the exercise. And so that's um, that produces heat as a byproduct. And so we, that's heat gain. And then we lose some heat to the environment just through um, convective loss and, and radiation from the skin. Sometimes we even gain heat if we're in direct sunlight, then we can gain a bit more heat from the, the sun as well or you know, bouncing off a road, for example, if you're running or riding on a, a, on a paved road. Um, and so you've got this sort of heat balance in terms of the amount of heat that's being produced and the amount of heat that's being lost. Um, and, and essentially the sweat is going to evaporate off your skin and as it does that, it removes that heat energy from the body. And so the sweat rate is um, quite carefully 
regulated to basically get enough of the heat away from the body to maintain a stable body temperature. Mm. Um, Now, it can't always do that because there's kind of a maximum rate at which your sweat glands can produce sweat. Um, And then there's limiting factors like clothing and equipment and things that will prevent evaporation away from the skin as well. So if you're completely covered up in clothes, I mean, anyone will know this, you know, you get really sweaty underneath, but that sweat doesn't evaporate, it just sticks to the skin. So if it's doing that, it's not actually evaporating, it's not cooling you down. So your body's response will be to produce even more sweat to try and get that evaporative process happening. So, you know, you're quite right. So, for example, if you do a sweat rate test indoors on a treadmill or a a bike um, indoors... Um, you've got a completely different result to what you would get outdoors um, because you don't have the same airflow going past to help with the evaporation. You might be wearing different equipment. Mm. You know, you might not be wearing a helmet on the bike inside. Um, the temperature and the humidity will be quite different um, than maybe the pace that you're exercising at. So you've got to standardise as many of those things and get them as similar to what you experience on race day, assuming that that's what you want to know about. Uh, it might be training um, in some cases. But, yeah, you want to sort of replicate conditions as best as you possibly can when you're doing that sweat rate testing and knowing that, you know, no two days outdoors will ever be exactly the same. Mm. Um, and so you will see differences in sweat rate from day to day because every day is different in mm. terms of temperature, humidity, airflow, wind direction, the coloured T-shirt that you wore today, all that kind of stuff will make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that come into it. I was interested to know, with someone who, say, is doing a very low-carbohydrate diet or basically keto, so you know, very little glycogen in their system, um, compared to someone eating a really high-carb diet uh, with, say, maxed-out glycogen stores, and they both go off and do a sweat rate test, should we or how do we account for, obviously, there's that, that loss of glycogen in there as well? How do you go about that? Yeah, probably over an hour or two, it's not really going to make enough of a difference to be able to measure. I mean, if you think about it, we're measuring body weight on scales that are probably only accurate to 100 grams anyway. So you're only seeing differences of more than 100 grams that will actually appear on the scale. So the amount of glycogen you use might be, you know, 100, 150 grams or something like that. It's probably not going to be enough to really affect the result of your fluid balance assessment. The only um, caveat to that would be more so if you're measuring over, say, an ultramarathon or an Ironman or something where you're going for 10 or more hours, then it does add up uh, and you will see significant differences. Um, But generally, you're not going to be doing a fluid balance assessment over that period of time anyway. Like if you're trying to test it in training to see what the likely sweat rate will be, you're not going to do that over a 10-hour run anyway. I mean, you might weigh, you know, people sometimes weigh themselves before and after an event, um, but yeah, if you're actually just doing it from a training perspective, it probably doesn't matter too much. Mm. And with the vari- variance between individuals with sweat rate, how does adaptation or like fitness um, and specificity to their training and also uh, acclimatization, how does that come into um, sweat rate? And also, like, does their body adapt to the amount of sodium lost as well? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess if we think about it, every biological system kind of adapts to whatever stress it's placed under. Um, and, and that's no different with um, fluid losses and sweat rate uh, and, and sodium as well. So, you know, if you're exposed to a hot environment and you're sweating frequently, you know, most days for a period of time, you're going to reduce producing quite a bit of sweat. And if it's pushing towards kind of the maximum amount of sweat that your body can produce... You know, it's just like lifting weights in the gym close to the maximum amount you can. The body's going to adapt back and improve the amount that you can lift over time. Well, it's the same thing with the sweat glands. They're going to improve sort of their maximal sweat rate as well over time. And so what you'll find is that um, as you acclimatise to heat or, or do a deliberate acclimation period where you go into a hot environment and exercise for probably, you know, an hour and a half, you know, several days in a row, your sweat rate will get greater Now, the sweat rate itself won't be greater for any given level of heat, but the maximum that it can get to will be greater. And so when you go into that hot environment where you're pushing that limit, you can go further in terms of sweat rate, and so you will see higher sweat rates. You also see that the sweat glands start to operate 
will start to produce sweat at a lower core body temperature, so usually earlier on in, in exercise as well. Um, and, you, you know, part of that acclimation process is your core temperature generally sits a bit lower at rest as well. Hmm. Um, on the sodium side of things, we see exactly the same. You know, we've known for decades that, you know, your kidneys are very good at adjusting to changes in the amount of sodium in your diet. Um, and, you know, in the, the clinical area, you know, often people collect what we call a 24-hour urinary sodium excretion, so they carry this two-litre bottle around with them all day collecting every drop of urine they produce um, to see how much sodium's in that, and it's kind of re- reasonably reflective. It's not perfect, but it's reasonably reflective of how much is in their diet. Um, uh, we know that the sweat glands uh, have this kind of adaptation as well, and, and as I mentioned, that was something I looked at in my PhD. Um, so if you follow a really low sodium diet for a period of time, the, the amount of sodium in your sweat will go down um, in my study, we looked at that over a period of three days, which is a bit shorter than some of the other ones, but we wanted to look at that time period because it's traditionally, you know, a lot of athletes will deliberately load up on sodium sort of two or three days before an event, thinking that that's helpful. Um, so what we wanted to see is if they do that, what does that actually do to their sweat sodium losses on race day? Uh, and we found that, yes, it does alter it, but um, even if you doubled kind of your normal sodium intake for three days... Uh, on average, the, the increase was only about 10 to 15%. Um, some people was much more than that. Some people had virtually no increase. Um, and, and we saw that in both directions. So if we halved the sodium intake, it went right down. If we doubled it, it, it went up um, over three days. But, yeah, the effect wasn't actually as big as we were potentially expecting. But if you carried that on for you know several days, a week or something, you would expect to see bigger differences start to emerge. And, and there's been studies that have, that have done that. Um, and heat acclimation can do a similar thing. Um, so you actually see a reduction in the sweat sodium concentration with heat acclimation, but it's thought that that's probably just due to the fact that you've lost a whole bunch of sodium through your sweat through that acclimation process. And because of that, your sweat glands are now responding by um, releasing less because you've lost so much already. Um, whereas if you replace all of that sodium that you were losing during acclimation, the sweat gland function doesn't change. And with what you looked at there with the days leading up in sodium intake and uh, the the sodium amount in their sweat, did you also look at the performance differences in terms of the people who had consumed more sodium versus those who didn't? Uh, we didn't in that study. Um, there, there's actually been very little research on sodium replacement and performance, which might surprise people because it's so often talked about, particularly, um, I guess, marketing of, you know, sodium-containing products, you know, sports drinks, electrolyte tablets, capsules, all those sorts of things. But uh, as part of my PhD, we did a systematic review, so we went out and tried to find every study that had ever been published on sodium replacement and performance, and we only found six, um, and not one of them was done in the heat. I think the highest temperature in any of those was about 25 Celsius, um, so there literally has been nothing done in the heat. Uh, not one of them had replaced the sodium uh, according to the losses of that individual, they just gave everyone an arbitrary amount. So for some people, it was probably way too much and some people, it probably wasn't enough to completely replace their losses. Um, and in some of them, there were some other big sort of issues with the way the studies were done, which meant that personally, I wouldn't really trust the results from them. But of those six studies, only one of them showed any benefit of consuming sodium on performance. That study was uh, was actually during a real half Ironman. So they actually got a bunch of people that were doing a half Ironman, gave some of them salt capsules and some of them placebo capsules and then looked at the finish times. Um, but the problem of doing that in a real-life event is you've got, you know, things like the transition times, uh, which might have mucked up some of that data a little bit. Um, you've got things like drafting and non-drafting and other things going wrong along the way or differences in how much carbs they were consuming. So it's, it's hard to say with confidence that that's a real result. And the result also, the difference in finish time was... Uh, so big that if you look at that compared to sort of lab-controlled studies of things like carbohydrate loading or caffeine or, or any of those other kind of common interventions, um, the effect was so much greater than those that I'm a bit sceptical that that was a real effect mm. or, or certainly that it was as large as that. Mm. Very interesting. So really what we can advise endurance athletes is um around sodium isn't isn't actually that detailed based off what we have to work with so far 
Correct. And that's sort of some of the work that I've been doing post-PhD now is trying to get to the stage where we can sort of say, well, these are the conditions under which or the scenarios where replacing sodium according to a specific amount, so actually going out and testing it might add value. Uh, and if so, how much sodium do we replace? So you go out and do a sweat test and you get your numbers back. You know, what do you do with those numbers? Currently, there's no guidelines or anything. You know, it's just people's opinions of what they think should be done. Um, but there's literally zero science to, to guide that question. So um, that's where I've started doing a bit of work on that. I've got a paper in review at the moment um, trying to answer that question with some, some mathematical modelling. Mm. And there's always the athletes that come and ask, you know, I mean, unless you're in a lab condition like you would work in, you can't go out with, you know, your athletes and do measure their um, sodium and their sweat. <laughs> it's just not that feasible in an everyday environment. Uh, but those athletes that have the, you know, white streaks on their clothing or, um, you know, the, the sodium dried on their skin after they finish, is there any, you know, information around maybe advising those who have clearly a high um, sodium sweat rate to be replacing a little bit more or be more cautious of um, the sodium content of, say, the sports drinks they're consuming? Uh, not necessarily, and this comes back to what I was talking about before, that you can't really consider the sodium replacement without considering the fluid replacement. Um, before that, though, I was just going to comment on the crust on the skin. It's an interesting one. Obviously, if it's on the skin, that's one thing. If it's on the clothing, that can be a bit difficult to interpret sometimes because sometimes you might go, oh, I had a big salt loss today and I didn't last week. Well, it might be because you wore a black T-shirt today and a white T-shirt last week, and so it just visually looks quite different, not necessarily that it is different. So just be, being a little bit careful about that. Mm. Um, but in terms of, yeah, as I said, you know, combining the sodium replacement with the fluid replacement is, is critically important, and um, that mathematical modelling I was just talking about, what we're seeing with that, is it's only in really situations where you're replacing probably 80% or more of your fluid losses that you actually need to replace any sodium at all um, and then the higher the sweat sodium concentration you know, the higher that requirement becomes but yeah until you know if you're not replacing more than 80 percent of your fluid losses then really sodium replacement doesn't seem to add any value and and the main reason for that is that when we sweat we lose both fluid and sodium but the the amount of sodium we lose per litre of fluid, so the, the millimoles per litre of sodium lost or milligrams per litre, if you want to talk about it that way, is substantially lower than what it is in the blood. And so basically what that means is you're losing water and you're losing sodium, but proportionally you're losing more water than you're losing sodium. So that's what's coming out of the body. Then you look at what's left in the body. Essentially, you're taking out more water than you have taken out sodium. So the concentration of sodium in the blood is actually going up, not down. So people think, oh, I'm losing sodium. But yes, you are. But the sodium concentration in what's left in the body is actually going up. And so if you then start putting in a whole lot of sodium relative to the water that you're replacing, well, it's only just going to make it go up even more. Mm. Um, or if you're just drinking plain water with no sodium, yes, that will bring it down. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's only bringing it down to normal because it was elevated in the first place, and that's not necessarily a problem. Mm. So, yeah, it seems to be around that sort of 80% mark seems to be where, you know, the amount of water that you're having is sufficiently diluting the sodium in the blood that adding sodium would, would help compensate for that. Um, but in a lot of situations, if you look at studies that have tried to measure people's sweat rates but also then how much they drink, during exercise, generally in sports of less than two or three hours duration, it's very unusual, unless someone's over-drinking, um, to consume more than about 60 70% of your fluid losses during mm -hmm. that event. Um, often it's, you know, the intensity is high, so it's harder to drink. You've got less access or slowing down is going to be more costly. Mm -hmm. Like if you're an elite marathon runner, every time you slow down at a drink station, um, you, you know, you're losing ground potentially to your competitors and so uh, and just the gastrointestinal tolerance you're just not going to be able to tolerate the volume of fluid that you would need to get even close to covering your sweat losses and so they don't and um and that's fine so it's generally the longer events where the tolerance will be a little bit better you've got more access to fluid over a longer period of time 
and where your cumulative effect of sweat loss over 8, 10, 15, 20 hours is going to grow and grow and grow as the time goes on, where you sort of have to get closer to that 100% fluid replacement to um, prevent significant dehydration, whereas in those shorter events, you know, anything below probably three hours, it makes very little difference. Well, you know, it makes some difference, but not much. And so there really isn't a need for sodium from what we can see from the modelling. Mm. You can get away with it a bit more in a shorter event than an ultra, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I think it's been it's been a really interesting process to go through this modelling, and and I think what's come out of it for me from a, a learning perspective is that really that sweat testing is potentially quite valuable in in an ultra marathon setting. You know, people that are going sort of six or even eight hours plus, but anything below that, it probably doesn't necessarily add that value because it's not really going to change what you're doing anyway. Um, and so the way I talk about it in the paper is that you know, there's times where we, you know, quote unquote season to taste, you know, you just add as much or as little sodium as you want to make your food and your drinks taste the way you want them to taste because the amount doesn't really matter. Um, and then there's, you know, the longer situations where you might have to do a bit more sort of targeted testing and replacement. Um, not to say that everyone is going to have to replace sodium, but some people might, um, and that can give you an idea of how much. And with some athletes out there, like there's a lot of uh, brands that, you know, make the electrolyte tablets and um, different concentrations of sodium drinks, etc. Um, the athletes hammering back, say, those quite high concentration sodium capsules or um, mixed electrolyte capsules, is there actually a risk to them in terms of taking so many that, uh, you know, like you said, you're concentrating that sodium in their blood more and more and you're getting, I guess, the opposite effect of hyponatremia and getting hypernatremia. Yes, yeah. Um, so there's probably two parts to that. One is if you're taking that all at once, particularly if it's in tablet form or something like gelatin capsules that dissolve really quickly into your stomach. If you dump a whole lot of salt into your stomach at once, for a lot of people that, that can make them quite nauseous and even vomit um, mm. from that or give them sort of more gastrointestinal disturbance further down. Um, so that's obviously one risk of taking high dose, you know, without water. Uh, and the other one, as you said, is that hypernatremia. Um, and I guess that's going to do a couple of things. One is you're going to be a lot thirstier because that hypernatremia tends to stimulate thirst. And so uh, in some situations, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It encourages a bit more fluid intake, but it can sometimes just make you so thirsty if you don't have access to the fluid that can be quite off-putting while you're trying to race. Um, the other thing is when you do have that hypernatremia, what it's going to do is draw water out of your cells into the bloodstream to try and dilute that down. Um, now, exactly what effect that's having during exercise isn't really well studied, so it's hard to say that, you know, that's a problem or, or what that problem would be. Um, but if we're doing that, when we don't need to and there's no benefit, I guess, why would you? Mm. And a lot of people out there hammer the sodium because they think it will prevent cramp. <laughs> mm. But we know that that's not actually the case so much and it's more to do with performance conditioning. But what's your thoughts around uh, that balance of fluid and sodium in terms of, you know, the dreaded cramp? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say with cramping is it's, it's really difficult to understand. And the reason for that is that if you can imagine you're a researcher trying to research cramping, you don't just bring a whole bunch of people into the lab and say, you know, okay, when I count to 10, can you just cramp for me? And then I can <laughs> measure different things. Yeah. You know, cramping is unpredictable. Um, and so it's, it's quite difficult to measure. And so what usually happens is there's a couple of different things. One is you can just flog people either in the lab or go out to a an Ironman event or something and ask people what happened. Um, so sort of observational type studies. Um, or there's sort of electrically stimulated models of cramping where they put like little electrodes on a usually a pretty small muscle because it's not very pleasant. Um, could even be a toe or a calf or something like that. And they basically electrically stimulate the muscle until it starts spasming up. Um, and so what they do is they measure basically how much stimulation did they have to give you before it spasmed up. The idea being that if you're more cramp-prone or in a cramp-prone state because of something that's happened to you, fatigue or whatever, um, it doesn't require as much stimulation before it seizes up. Um, so it's not really a, a real-world scenario, but it does seem to correlate fairly well 
you know, the people that are more prone crampers tend to seize up more easily in that electrically stimulated model as well. And so, you know, between those different types of models, you can start to, you know, vary things and, and measure what influence they might have. I think the thing I would say with cramps is overall, it's probably almost what we'd call like a syndrome. There's, you know, potentially multiple different ways that you can end up in a seized up muscle that we call a cramp but there isn't just one way to achieve a cramp. There's probably multiple pathways, and we know that there's certain risk factors in terms of certain medications, medical conditions. As you said, um, you know, if you're going harder or much longer than you normally are used to in, in training, that increases your risk, so there's that fatigue element there as well. On the sodium and hydration side, I think we're fairly confident that dehydration does not increase your risk of cramping. If anything, it's actually protective. Um, if you go back to sort of the original studies in the 1930s with miners who started cramping up, um, in fact, it was when they tended to overdrink water and develop hyponatremia where they're more prone to cramping um, rather than the other way around. Um, now, hyponatremia sounds like low blood sodium, but in this case, it's probably more so the overhydration component to that. Um, there has been a couple of studies in recent years that have looked at uh, one phenomenon which may be related to sort of sodium and hydration and cramping and may explain why anecdotally athletes swear by taking sodium and yet the research doesn't really show that. Um, and that is in studies where people have um, gone out and exercise and they've become dehydrated. So they've lost water. Um, and as we said before, their, sweats, uh, their blood sodium concentration, sorry, will go up as a result of that. So they're hypernatremic. And then they've stopped exercising or at the end of the exercise they've consumed a whole lot of fluid and it's either plain water or like a high sodium fluid and the ones that consume the plain water then seem to be more susceptible to cramping. So it's not necessarily that you're correcting a sodium deficiency here. I think it's what it's more around is in the ones that have the plain water, they've suddenly diluted their blood sodium fairly quickly and that's going to cause a big shift of fluid from the blood and the interstitial fluid into the cells mm -hmm. uh, and the cells are going to expand fairly rapidly. Maybe not too much. They're not necessarily hyponatremic, but just back towards what they were before. And so this rapid movement of fluid into the cells might be contributing. We, we don't know yet. Um, whereas the group that have the, the highest salt water um, don't see that effect happening and it's probably because, again, you don't get that big fluid shift. You're just sort of um, kind of letting it down more slowly, so to speak. Mm, no, really interesting. Yeah, and the the cramps mm. always a question you get, isn't it, with uh, athletes? So it's a tricky one. Mm. Yeah, and I think you know maybe the reason in some cases that salt does help with cramping is simply because it's you know if someone has um, you know become dehydrated over the first couple of hours of their Ironman or marathon or whatever, and then they've suddenly started drinking more, they are getting that dilution effect if they start getting that and then they take some sodium in whatever form, it's maybe helping reverse a little bit of that dilutional effect and, mm. and maybe that's helping. Mm. But it's, it's not a sodium deficiency, which is what people typically think of it as. Uh, I think we're pretty confident that that's not the issue. Mm. Um, but there may still be sort of that interaction of sodium and water and how it moves between the, the, interstitial, uh, sorry, the intracellular fluid, the fluid inside the cells, and the fluid outside the cells and the interaction as fluid moves from one to the other that might have some something to do with cramping, but it's still not clear. Mm. Mm. Very good. And I was really keen to talk a little bit about heat and acclimatisation as well. So yep. to start with that, um, does heat or heat stress influence our sodium losses? Uh, yes, in that obviously the hotter you hotter the environment, the more you're going to be sweating. So the more sodium overall you are going to lose. Um, also, because of the way that the sweat glands work, even in the same person, even on the same day, as your sweat rate goes up. So you can imagine, you know, starting an event early in the morning where it's fairly cool and then as the day goes on, it gets hotter. Mm. Um, your sweat rate, you know, if you can maintain the same pace, your sweat rate theoretically is going to go up in the hotter part of the day. Uh, and as it goes up, you generally see a higher sodium concentration in that sweat um, and the reason for that is the way the sweat glands work they produced uh, what we call primary sweat at the base of the sweat gland which has pretty much the same sodium concentration as your blood and then it travels through the duct of the sweat towards the skin surface and as it travels through some of the sodium is absorbed back into the body which is why that the sweat 
that ends up you know, on your skin always has a lower sodium concentration than what's in the blood. But the, fast, the higher the sweat rate, the faster you're forcing sweat through those ducts, the less chance all of the sodium has to get back through. And so you actually um, you reabsorb less of that sodium and so you get a higher sweat sodium concentration on the, what's actually lost on the skin surface. Mm. Very cool. And with um, athletes, like I've, I've had a few here who before COVID times, you know, they'd train here in Canterbury, which I guess is fairly cold compared to Australia, especially Queensland. And they'd be working towards, you know, the Ken's Ironman or something in really yeah. quite hot tropical conditions. What are some tips and strategies athletes can do to prepare their bodies for like such a drastic change in temperature on race day? Yeah, I mean, the best thing you can do is heat acclimation. Um, I mean, acclimatisation is nice if you could travel there, you know, a couple of weeks beforehand, but that's obviously for um, most people that's not realistic. Mm. So then you're looking at sort of acclimation. So that's where you would um, essentially go through a process of deliberately exercising in a hot environment in an artificially hot environment at home. Um, and usually, you know, in the ideal world, you do that sort of almost every day for at least 10 days, preferably 14, to get the full sort of adaptations that go along with heat acclimation, but probably a minimum of four or five. Now, as I said before, you know, your body adapts to the stress it's under, and heat acclimation is no different to that. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to have a room set at 35 degrees, but if you just sit in there and read the paper, you're not actually elevating your body temperature very much. You're not putting it under stress and you're not going to get the adaptation. So you actually have to get the body temperature up for a prolonged period of time to actually get that stress to have the adaptation. So I guess it's like going to the gym and just taking selfies instead of lifting weights. Um, and so, yeah, you have to get the, the body temperature up probably at least sort of 38 and a half for a prolonged period of time, you know, multiple days in a row to see that those adaptations come through heat acclimation. So, yeah, I mean, some people deliberately go to, you know, if they've got access to a commercial climate chamber or something, we'll do it there. But, you know, I've seen other people, even, you know, professional cyclists, for example, when the World Championships were in Qatar a few years ago, um, just setting up their bathroom with, with heaters and then setting up the their kicker in the bathroom and uh, riding away in there um, in, you know, 30 or 35 degrees and, and just pedalling around in there for, for a couple of hours. It's surprising how quickly that adaptation can happen, you know, within 10 to 14 days. Sorry? It's quite surprising how rapidly that um, adaptation can happen for, you know, the heat in terms of like 10 to 14 days. Mm. That's quite rapid. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the decline is not quite as rapid, but can be reasonably rapid as well. And that's obviously something that yeah, in, in that situation where you're then travelling to another country to race, you know, mm. for us it's often coming to the southern states of Australia, going to Kona, for example, for the Ironman over there in October when it's pretty cold here. Um, the same thing, you know, if you're travelling, um, you need to make sure you're doing your acclimation as close to the travel time as you can mm. um, and so you don't lose that in those couple of days where you're travelling. Um, obviously, once you get over there, you can sort of start that process again in the warm environment as well, which will help. Mm. Yeah. And with athletes competing in really, really hot environments, what are some strategies they can use to try and keep their body temperature under control during those really challenging races? Yeah. Probably the the first thing would be to differentiate between an environment that's hot but dry Mm -hmm. and an environment that's hot and humid because the strategies that you can use or that will be effective are going to be quite different. So in a dry environment, hot, dry environment, probably the best strategy you have is, is evaporation. So getting um, you know, either sweat or, or any other fluid really evaporating off the skin surface is going to be very effective at removing heat from the body. Um, now, I say, you know, sweat or other fluids, you know, you pour water over yourself, it's just, you know, it's still going to be evaporated off the skin surface. It's still going to carry the heat away from the body. So I remember a time, you know, 10 or 15 years ago where people, you know, in the sports nutrition industry used to scoff at people that would pour water them over themselves. Oh, that'd be ridiculous. You're getting dehydrated and you're wasting all this water over your head. What are you doing? But we know that it's actually much more effective to pour it over yourself and evaporate off that heat. It's going to have a far better effect of cooling you down than, than actually drinking it is. Now, obviously, you don't want to get dehydrated. Ideally, you do both. Um, but, yeah, pouring water over yourself, um, essentially, it's like free sweat. 
you know, you don't have to produce the sweat, but you still get the same amount of evaporation. Um, and, and interestingly, the temperature of the water doesn't actually matter. So it doesn't matter if that water is 4 degrees Celsius or 30 degrees Celsius, the evaporation and the amount of heat that it removes from your body is exactly the same. Mm. Now, one will obviously feel more pleasant, but, you know, if you can't access cold water, um, you know, air temperature water is, is just as effective for that purpose. So, yeah, that's, that's obviously a good one. Um, just make sure you pour the water bottle over yourself and don't accidentally grab a sports drink bottle and you'll be a bit <laughs> sticky. Um, so that, that's certainly in dry conditions, that would be the, the main emphasis. In humid conditions, it doesn't work quite as effectively because the evaporation of sweat and the removal of heat from the body uh, is dependent on the difference in humidity between the air and the skin surface. And so on a very humid day, there's much less difference between that and so you get much less evaporation, which is why you know, the sweat just sticks to your skin and it feels disgusting and, and you, know, you get quite soggy skin because of it. So in that situation, then you need to think about, okay, well, what are other methods I can use to try and cool me down, given that that evaporative effect is not going to be as great? Uh, and that's where using some of the cooling methods might be helpful here. Uh, some of those are nutritionally related in terms of, you know, putting things in your mouth. Other things are like more external, sort of, I guess they more under the sports science remit in terms of, you know, ice towels and um, you see cyclists with stockings filled up with ice that they put around their neck like a scarf kind of thing to um, help with the cooling as well. So there's all of those kind of strategies, the use of ice slushies. It's more so before exercise rather than during. Um, you know, can lower the body temperature a little bit before exercise starts as well. Um, and sometimes it's just psychological. Even if it's not having a massive impact on core temperature, you feel cooler psychologically. That's still helpful to people. Um, and that, that still may be beneficial from performance or at least just the enjoyment of the day perspective. Mm. Um, so they're probably the, the main strategies that, that people can use. Mm. And there's some that I guess are a little bit more risky in terms of um, like it, it feels like it's cooling, but it's not, which isn't so good, such as using mint or peppermint. Is that such a thing? Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly right. So, yeah, you can use menthol, which is the sort of the active component in, in mint, um, different mint species. So most people would recognise this when you brush your teeth, you kind of have that cooling effect in your mouth afterwards and that's the, the menthol from the, the toothpaste. Um, so you can get um, different products that have menthol in them, um, sort of confectionery that has menthol in it. Certainly here in Australia there's a couple of different products you can get. Um, there's a, I think Goo actually developing a menthol containing gel as well. I'm not sure if it's commercially available yet, but that's certainly in the works. Uh, and the idea here is, you know, you put one of those things in your mouth, you know, people know that you get that feeling of that cooling effect, um, but you're quite right. It doesn't actually cool you down. It just tricks the, the nerve endings in your mouth to think, you know, it gives you that sensation of coolness, but it doesn't actually lower temperature. Um, and so that can be nice from a psychological point of view, but I guess, as you said, the danger there is that you feel like you're cooler than you really are. Um, probably in the ultra space, it probably isn't going to have a huge consequence because the intensity is low enough that you're generally not going to have so much of a problem. But in the sort of, um, you know, half marathon, marathon where, you know, you can push the intensity quite high and therefore your body temperature quite high, if you have that sort of false sensation of being cooler than you are and sort of tricking your brain, um, yeah, there is a, a risk, a theoretically at least risk, that you can push yourself too hard and therefore... Um, while you might go a little bit faster, and at least in the short term, uh, you might push your body temperature too high and put yourself at risk of heat illness. Mm, which is not good. Mm. No. No. Hey, Alan, you've been wonderful. You're so knowledgeable. Um, I'm just very aware that time's gone quite quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. So just to summarise all the wonderful points you've discussed, maybe in like three key points for maybe the endurance athletes listening out there, what would be like your top three takeaways from the co podcast with regards to uh, hydration, sodium and heat stress? I think hydration, um, that fluid balance assessment is useful. Do it under lots of different conditions on hot days, cooler days. Um, make sure you replicate you know, kind of race pace and clothing and equipment and all of those things as closely as you can to get a more realistic picture of what's going on. Um, um, and then, yeah, there's obviously a whole bunch of factors, some of them biological, but some of them more practical and logistical to how much fluid you can actually carry, tolerate, replace during exercise. Um, 
and I think that leads nicely into the sodium one, which is, you know, if it's not going to be possible to, to drink more or practical to drink more than sort of 80% of what your sweat losses are, then probably replacing, you know, a targeted amount of sodium isn't really going to be of benefit, and in which case there's not really much point in doing sweat testing. Um, so if you're in an event or a situation where you're, where the likely fluid intake during exercise is going to be lower than sort of 80% of the sweat rate, then sweat testing is probably not going to be that helpful. Um, and so where you see more likely to get over 80% is generally in the ultra-endurance type stuff. Um, it's just mathematically how it kind of works out. Um, so that's probably the sodium side of things. Otherwise, you know, if it's anything less than that, just add and subtract as much or as little sodium as you want from a taste perspective and um, it's not really going to influence your risk of hyponatremia or cramping or anything like that unless you're over drinking, which you shouldn't be anyway. Um, and then on the heat side of things, I guess yeah, heat acclimation is probably the number one strategy to prepare, whether it's going to be dry or humid. Um, and then if it is dry, you know, maximising the chance to evaporate water, whether that sweat or water poured over you off the skin surface is going to be very effective at helping keep you cool. Um, the temperature of that doesn't matter. Um, and if it's a humid environment, then some of those other cooling strategies using ice and things like that starts to become more useful. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, a lot of good takeaways in there. And I'm sure you've ironed out a few questions a lot of athletes would have had. So yeah, thanks so much for your time and expertise, Alan. It's been fantastic. Yeah, um, not a problem. Pleasure. For those who are interested to get in touch with you, I am aware you have your wonderful own podcast as well. But if they wanted to yep. get in touch with anything you've discussed or questions, how's best to contact you? Uh, yeah, probably uh, you can contact me via Twitter. Um, my handle is Next Level Nuts. So it's N E X T L V L N U T is the Twitter handle. Um, or nextlevelnutrition.com.au. So that's my private practice. Um, but as, as you said, I also work through Monash, so you can look at Monash Nutrition and Exercise Clinic, uh, particularly if anyone's in Melbourne is interested in getting involved in any of our studies, for example, as participants. Uh, we'd love to have you because there's a lot happening at the moment. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're probably the, the main ones. Um, if you're more on the research side, you can certainly find me on ResearchGate as well and, and have a look at the, the various studies in there. And if there's a paper you can't access, then you, know, you can contact me via ResearchGate and I can probably help you with that as well. Cool. That's great. Thank you. And yeah, I'd strongly encourage everyone to have a listen to the Long Munch podcast because it's uh, fantastic and yeah, very helpful. Cool. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. Thank you.